All right. Good morning. I always love those videos. The God who commands the seasons. That's such a that's such a good concept. Such a such an enormous thing for us to to conceive. It's such a such a good God that we're we're worshiping, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So, good morning. Uh, it's just such a privilege again to be here in front of you today. If you have your Bibles, like what Pastor Brian already mentioned, turn to Exodus 26. That's where we're at today. Exodus 26. We're going to look at the whole chapter today. There's a lot of stuff in there, and so we're going to depend on the Lord for His grace through it. Just pray with me as we begin, Father. We're just so grateful of who you are and what you've revealed in your text, Lord, the magnitude of who you are in the text. And we pray, Father, that as we look at the details, as we look at the specificity in there, that we would give you glory for all of it, that you would stir our hearts so that our hearts will be at awe at who you are. Bless our day, our time, and our work together in the text as you illuminate your word for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Hey, uh, a couple of months ago, let me tell you a little story. A couple of months ago, uh, I, have, I had a medical appointment and I assumed where it was, right? So I drove. I was like, I already know where it was. So I get there and guess what? It was in the wrong place. Completely wrong, right? So I got there and I was like, this is the wrong place. I didn't even check GPS. I thought I knew, but I didn't. So I missed the appointment uh, and I had to make another one. And so a couple of weeks later, I had a virtual appointment, right? A telemedicine. Some of you guys have already done that. It's so super convenient because you don't have to be where it is, like you could just do it anyway. as long as you have a phone with a signal, it works. So I was actually with my doctor driving. Don't do that. That's, that's dangerous, by the way. So I was talking to my doctor while I was driving in this telemedicine appointment. And it was so convenient that I didn't have to be or drive to his uh, office, but I could connect with them anywhere. It was so good. Technological advance and light years. You know what I mean. Anyways, so we're going to take a look today at the tabernacle. And today as a physical structure with a tabernacle, with a location, but with a God who is not physical and a God who is not bound by location. In John chapter 4, Jesus, remember the story, Jesus is speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well. He crosses into Samaria, discusses a lot of things with her. And in verse 21, Jesus says, woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the father, neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem. And you skip to verse 24, it says, because God is spirit and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. I wonder if you caught that, right? Jesus says, a time is coming when those who worship the Father won't need to worship in this mountain or in Jerusalem, not because you can't worship there anymore, but because there will be a time, and it is now, where Jesus says, no longer are those places going to bound how we worship. How? Because our God is spirit, and we must worship him in spirit and truth. He's not bound by location or geography or a building. So we're kind of in the middle, not kind of, actually in the middle of this awesome series called Worship Is, right? So we've been looking at God's intent, His design, His heart for worship, and we've been approaching it in a very cool, unique way. In week one, we talked about worship is relationship, where our worship deepens our relationship with God and the Lordship of Christ. In the second week, we talked about worship is response, where worship is giving back to God what He has already entrusted us. Last week, we talked about uh, worship is beautiful, specifically 
specifically how beautiful mercy is and in the, in the highlight of the mercy seat in the Ark of the Covenant. And today, week four, we're going to talk about worship is not a place. Worship is not a place. And that, well, that's what we see here in Exodus 26. And it's, it's an important reminder for us if we step back. Because right now, during this environment, in this season, the church seems to be displaced, right? The, the believers aren't meeting corporately together as we used to. But it's such a good news for us today because it's a reminder for us that a, the reason why worship is not a place is because God is not bound by a place. He's not bound by location. Now, it's true that we shouldn't neglect the meeting of the brethren because community and fellowship are gifts to us by God. And sanctification, sanctification and maturity is, uh, is how we grow, right? We sharpen each other. We grow by engaging one another. But at the same time, we need to celebrate the reality that we don't need to go to a place, a particular place, to come to God and worship God and meet God. He is everywhere. We're going to talk about that today. So there's going to be a lot of details as we go through the tabernacle. And we're going to talk about materials. We're going to talk about architecture. We're going to talk about symbolism and artwork and even a little bit of math for you math geniuses. You probably you are like perking up right now. But immediately as I read this, I bet you more than once, you're probably going to think in your mind, what does this have to do with anything? Right? Because we're going to be like, oh my gosh, details upon details. But I want you to step back and make no mistake. This is about worship. And this is about Jesus. It's about worship because God is establishing a focal point of his presence. That's what the tabernacle is. And Pastor Ryan talked about, he mentioned that that God was never meant to dwell there because worship is, is meant to be a condition of the heart. But God, in his infinite knowledge of humanity, because he, got, he made us, he understood that we're fickle, that we're forgetful, that we're prone to wander. And so what he does, he establishes a place in the center of camp to be an ever-present reminder to the people of God that his presence is with them. So in the morning, <clears throat> you know, they wake up, they, they rub the McNasties out their eyes, and they look and go, hey, look at the center of the camp. It's the tabernacle. That's God's presence. That's where worship happens. And so it's also about Jesus. As it is about, as it is about worship, it's also about Jesus. We're going to talk about John 1, where the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that word dwelt is the word tabernacle. We're going to talk about the veil and how it separated the most holy place from the holy place and how that veil was torn um, when Jesus died. And it's going to be a very technical study, or it could be a very technical study. And if we were a plane, we're actually going to fly uh, at a hundred. So we're not a, we're not a Boeing. We're going to be a, some kind of glider or a Cessna, right? Because we're going to we're going to fly low, about a hundred feet above the ground, not the thirty thousand feet of a Boeing or whatever, but close enough to see the details, but a little far enough to get a little bit of the big picture. Okay. So we're going to break down the 37 verses into four parts, four main sections. Number one is going to be a delicate curtain. That's going to be talking about the curtain um, verses one to six that, that, that covers initially the, um, the tabernacle. Number two, we're going to talk about the durable coverings. And that's the outer covering, which is very practical. We'll talk about that. The, we're going to talk about number three, the, des, the, design, the design construction, which is the frame and the structure of the actual building. And then finally, the dividing cloth, the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. So lots of work. Let's get to it. Number one, 
Delicate curtain, the delicate curtain. Moreover, verse one, you shall make the tabernacle with 10 curtains of fine woven linen and blue and purple and scarlet thread with artistic designs of cherubim. You shall weave them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits. Remember, a cubit is about 18 inches. So this is about 504 inches, which is about 42 feet. Don't worry about it all remembering all that. And the width of each curtain is four cubits, which is about six feet. And every one of the curtains shall be the same measurement. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops of blue yarn on the edge of the curtain on the salve edge. The salve edge is the finished edge of a fabric, so it keeps it from fraying, right? It's all fixed up. You guys have it in your jeans and your shirts. Anyways, on one set, and likewise you shall do on the outer edge of the other curtain and the second set. 50 loops you shall make in one curtain and 50 loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is not on the end of the second set. And the loops may be clasped to one another and you shall make 50 clasps of gold and couple the curtains together with clasps so that it may be one tabernacle. Take a breath, right? (laughs) That's a lot. Now take a look at the, the slide right now. The first slide... The picture is the segmented fabric, right? We talked about the four by 28 cubits, 10 individual curtains. They're meant to be joined together. Uh, they're, they're designed to cover the top and the sides of the tabernacle. It's not one solid piece, which is genius, by the way, because God designed it, right? Because otherwise, if it was one gigantic piece, it'd be hard to maintain, hard to repair, hard to move, right? And so God, in his infinite wisdom and knowledge, he says, man, let's segment, segment this thing to make it better. Now, the next, the next picture, you'll see it. This is how it goes on the tabernacle, right? But you will never see it this way. This is just for illustration so you understand. You'll see it if you were in the inside looking up, and you will see this. But this is actually covered. So the next picture with the brown covering, uh, that's actually how you see the tabernacle from the outside. And we'll, we'll talk about that a little later. Now, That's a lot of specifics, like a lot of details. And I know what you're asking because I already knew that you're going to ask this. What's this got to do with anything? There's so much stuff in there. But I want us to zoom out. And I want you to take a look at the detail, right? The amount of detail, the specifics, the exactness of how God wants it. Let me tell you what's fascinating to me. God never says, I don't really mind how it looks like as long as you're sincere. God doesn't say it like that. He never says that. In fact, that's a rebuke to us. I know it is to me because that runs contrary to our very Western view of Christianity. We love, we celebrate self-expression, right? We love our freedoms to do how we want it. We love to show creativity. We don't want to be limited. We don't want to be confined. We don't want to be told how But here, God leaves no room for anybody else's creativity or design or expression. God says, you're going to do it like this, and it's specific, it's intricate, it's precise, and it is exactly how I want it. That's amazing. That's that's something to take a hold of. Now, I want you to keep your mind in the idea of the detail, right? And I want you to step back even more. 
And I want you to look at creation. And I want you to look at the universe. And then I want you to look inwardly and see the specifics and how intricate you and our, my bodies are and how precise everything is in creation. On, a, on our midweek study, when we're talking about Jesus among secular gods, there's a portion there in the beginning of our study where a couple of scientists, a couple of atheist scientists actually says, that the fact that the universe is so finely tuned for life to such a precise degree defies comprehension and begs for an explanation. And the Bible actually provides that explanation. The psalmist says, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Let me give you some stats on our human bodies. Come some, some fun stats. Okay, did you know that if an adult, the adult person with their blood vessels if you line them up all end to end it could circle the entire world four times you know that did you know that our tongues are comprised with eight muscles that is that's kind of like an elephant's trunk or an octopus legs right it's it's so intricate did you know that a baby is born with about 300 bones And as they grow into adulthood, they fuse to be about 206 bones. Did you know that most of your bones are in your hands, in your wrist, and in your feet? That's amazing. And none of that's by accident. None of that is random. All of that is by design, by an intricate and precise maker. And we need to step back and celebrate that detail and let that mold us to go, man, God, you are worthy. You are an artist. You love the detail. Number two is the durable clothing. The durable clothing. That's verses 7 to 14. Now, before we get lost in the, in the details, right? Because there's a lot of details again. Uh, we're, gonna only talk, we're only talking about three coverings, okay? It's going to be goat hair, a canvas made of goat hair, a ram skin dyed in red, and then badger skin, which is really not badger skin. We're going to talk about that a little bit more. So verse seven, pick it up. You shall also make curtains of goat hair to be a tent over the tabernacle. You shall make 11 curtains. The length of each curtain shall be 30 cubits and the width of the width of each curtain, four cubits and 11 curtains shall be all the same measurements. And you shall couple five curtains by themselves, six curtains by themselves, and you shall double over the sixth curtain in the front of the tent. You shall make 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in one set and 50 loops on the edge of the curtain on the second set. And you shall make 50 bronze clasps, put clasps in loops and couple the tent together that it may be one. The remnant that remains of the curtain of the tent and the half curtain that remains shall hang over the back of the tabernacle and a cubit on one side and a cubit on the other side of what remains of the length of the curtains of the tent shall hang over the side of the tabernacle on the side on on this side and on that side to cover it. You shall also make the coverings of ram skins dyed red for the tent and the covering of badger skin. Above that. So the NIV actually uses durable leather, which is probably a better understanding of the whole thing. Take a look at the slide, and I want you to look at the, the remember the finely twined linen that, that we talked about in verse 1 to 6, right? That's on top of the tabernacle. 
over it is the goat hair canvas, right, covering the finely woven fabric. And on top of that is ram skin dyed in red, which no one is ever going to see, by the way. That's so interesting. No one's ever going to see that um, until you break down the tabernacle and someone's peeking, you know. But ram skin dyed in red, which signifies blood, signifies a male lamb, which signifies Jesus. And that's a different sermon altogether. But on top of that is a dual leather, right? The external most outer covering of the tabernacle is this durable leather. And some, some translation says badger skin. Some says dugong, which is some form of manatee. Some say it's seal. Some say it's, uh, it's dolphin, even porpoise, right? And you're like, what's all, what, how did you get those things? Well, they crossed through the Red Sea. Maybe they snatched a couple animals on the side. You know, I don't know. I don't know why, but the logic is, is good, right? Because you want a waterproof covering and what more waterproof covering than, uh, than aquatic mammals potentially, right? So that's the whole idea uh, of the whole thing. But I want you to notice that the dimensions of the coverings are slightly different from the red and blue Curtains, And the main reason for the difference is because they have different purposes. It's to protect and cover, right? And it's, and it's the same for the ram skin, and it's the same for the durable leather badger porpoise skin, whatever, right? And the purpose is not so much ceremony and adornment. It's more to be practical. And that's what I want us to zoom out on, how practical it is, that it's connected with reality. So listen, the tabernacle... It's both sacred and practical, right? It's sacred, obviously, because it's a holy place. It's a focal point of God's presence. It's meant to incite and to foster and to stir up praise. It's built for worship. It's built for sacrifice. But at the same time, it's practical. It's connected to reality. It's designed to be waterproof. And there's there's so many things in the in the in the structure that is that we're going to talk about later, there's a lot of thought that go into the design to make it portable. And some of you engineers out there, or some of you who are builders, carpenters, you know there's a little bit more thought and planning and design that goes into making something that's meant to be portable than for a fixed structure, right? There's connectors, there's hinges, can you know, a little bit, I don't know, I'm not a builder, anyway. But let me tell you a story, right? Well, maybe 20 years ago, I go into this carnival, kind of like, I don't know what you call it, I call it carnival, but those, you know, those, those, those rides, the, the Ferris wheels, the thing that show up in the middle of the town, all of a sudden they're there and then they're gone, right? They pack up, they leave, they come back, uh, the fair, carnival, whatever. Anyways, so about 20 years ago, me and a few buddies, we went to one of those things and I will go on a ride called the zipper. I'm not sure if you are aware of that one. They, I don't know if they still have it because they're not safe. Anyways, I go in there. And it's me and a buddy, and if you've never seen it, it's, you're, it's just a seat like this, and you're, and you're spinning like this while the whole thing is spinning, right? So you're like, whoa. And so I'm like already freaked out, but then a thought enters my mind that I can't remove. It goes, this thing is designed to be broken up into 10 million pieces. How, what if someone missed something? And I was like, oh no, right? As I'm spinning, I'm like freaked out because it's scary in itself. But then I was like, what if someone missed the 13th million part? Oh my gosh, right? So anyways, I don't know. That's, that's for you. But anyway, there's, a, there's an immediate, there's this immediate connection to us here, right? First thing is that this is not meant to be a permanent structure. This is not meant to be our permanent home. 
We're not meant to, to put roots down deep. John 17, 16, Jesus speaking about his disciples. He says, they are not of this world, just like I'm not of this world. We're not supposed to be from this world. We're supposed to be from a foreign country. Hebrews 13, 14 says, from here, we have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come. The second thing in, in terms of connections here is that we're both, we're supposed to be both practical and sacred. We're supposed to be both practical and sacred. There is an aspect of sacredness that should be found in our lives, right? Be holy for I am holy. First Peter 1, 16. Our lives should be focal points of God's presence. After all, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. First Corinthians 6, 19. We're going to talk about that connection. But at the same time, our holiness and our sacredness can't be disconnected from the real world. We must be sacred and practical. Practical in a way that we're not supposed to be so heavenly minded that we're not of earthly good. You ever met people like that? Super spiritual, but you can't ask them for help when it comes to real stuff. They can't be on time. They can't do anything. All they do is spit out religious and spiritual things. You're like, man, can you help me with this lock that I need to cut? And they go, oh, no, man, Jesus, you know, he is door. And you're like, I, well, I don't really... I need you to help me, man. Uh, you know, stuff like that. But, but that's, instead, we're supposed to be heavenly minded, but earthly useful. We're supposed to be practical and grounded in reality. Why? Because, because those who are hurting are here still. Because our, our friends and family who still need to know Jesus, they're still here. Those who are lost are still here. And the world doesn't need to see a bunch of religious people who are disconnected from reality. They need to see love in action. They need to see practical and useful life. They need to see a life that is wholly devoted to Jesus, but also aware of people's struggles and their pains and able to help. That's what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be both sacred and practical. Number three. Design construction. Design construction. That's verses 15 to 30. Now, uh, Pastor Brian covered the important objects of the tabernacle last week, right? The gold lampstand and, and the table of the showbread. And the most important one, the Ark of the Covenant and the, the mercy seat over it, right? And it's interesting that God talked about those objects that were housed in the tabernacle before he actually talked about the tabernacle. So it seems like he's going from the inside out. He's going from the most holy place where the ark is to the stuff in the holy place. And it's the same here. Naturally, if, like, if you're talking to someone who builds stuff, you probably, you know, when you're talking about structure, they're probably going to talk about the structure before the accessories, right? They'll be like, mm, it should be this dimension. Uh, you're not going to talk about the specific things that are in there first, right? But it's here, it's, it's, it's the opposite, right? And when it came to the tabernacle, God talked about the objects that were found inside, and then he talked about the finely woven fabric that goes over it, and then he talked about the coverings over that, and only now are we talking about the shape and the structure and the frame of the building. It's pretty interesting. Verse 15, follow me. For the tabernacle, you shall make the boards of acacia wood standing upright. Then 10 cubits shall be the length of a board. So that's the height of, uh, of the board is 10 cubits. Okay? And the cubit shall be half the width of each board. And 
17, two tendons. So when you see, when you think tendon, what you need to think about are, in the NIV, it says projections. In the New Living Translation, it says pegs. So when you buy furniture, like from Ikea specifically, right? They have those little, little things sticking out on the sides that meet another hole, right? And you put them together with no nails and they come together, right? That's the tendons that they're talking about, the little pegs, little projections. Okay. So anyway, verse 17, two tendons shall be in each board for binding to one another. Thus you shall make all the boards of the tabernacle. Verse 18, you shall make the boards of the tabernacle, 20 boards on the south side. That's the length of the tabernacle. You shall make 40 sockets of silver under the 20 boards, two sockets under each board for its to tendons. So 20 boards on, on one side, two sockets for each. Math genius is how many sockets on each side? 40. Okay, good. 40. Verse 20. And for the second side of the tabernacle, same thing. There shall be 20 boards and there 40 sockets of silver, two sockets under each board. For the far side of the tabernacle, westward, you shall make six boards. So this is the short uh, end of the tabernacle, the, the width. Okay, Uh, verse 23, you shall make two boards of two back corners of the tabernacle. They shall be coupled together at the bottom and they shall be coupled together at the top by one ring. This is this or thus shall it be for both of them. They shall be for two uh, corners so that there shall be eight boards with their sockets of silver, 16 sockets, two sockets under each board. Stop right there. Take a breather. I need to take a break. You need to take a break. Right. Anyway, so take a look at the slide and. Um, remember one cubit is about 18 inches, right? So the total height of the tabernacle is only 15 feet. That's 10 cubits, 15, it's about 15 feet. The length of the tabernacle is 30 cubits, which is about 45 feet. And the width of the tabernacle is about nine cubits, which is about 13 and a half feet. So I couldn't help but notice that it, it's pretty close to, or it reminded me of large shipping containers, right? That, that goes into the, uh, into like semi trucks. So in your, in your slide, you'll see that a large shipping container is about 40 feet and its width is about eight feet and it's, it's about eight and a half feet. So if you look at those, there's, you know, if you put them together four, like two together and then one too high and it's 40 feet already, that's about pretty close, not exact, but about the, the dimensions of a tabernacle. So next time you, you pass by those semi-containers or those, those shipping containers, I want you to step back and go, hmm, put these together, blah, blah, blah. blah. That's a tabernacle. That's, that is the, the, the shape and dimensions of a tabernacle. That's pretty amazing, right? Anyways, let's keep going. 26. And you shall make the bars of acacia wood, five for the boards on one side of the tabernacle, five bars for the boards on the other side of the tabernacle, five bars on the boards of the side of the tabernacle for the, fa- for the far side westward. The middle bar shall pass through the midst of the boards from end to end. You shall overlay the boards with gold, make their rings gold as the holders of the bar overlay the bars with gold. And you shall raise up the tabernacle according to its patterns, which you were shown in the mountain. So the slide, the slide shows the bars. Uh, They're made of acacia wood. That's a very dense wood. In fact, that's the only hard wood that you can use for building in that era or that area, right? So they use a lot of acacia wood because it's dense and you can build with it, but that's the only one. Anyways, but this section is really where the tabernacle starts to take shape, 
Right? And so we mentioned last week that the tabernacle is really not that big. And we looked at the dimensions. It's really not that big. As from the outside, you, you'll look at it and go, man, that's a small thing. That's not very big. It doesn't catch a lot of attention, right? It's not regal in a sense. Like you, you if you were a stranger, you wouldn't automatically walk by and go, man, that must be the wor- where they worship. You wouldn't. Like, unless you knew what it was, and besides it being in the middle of the camp, like it, it doesn't draw the attention like that. It's not like, whoa, right? It's, it's counterintuitive. You would not assume that's where God's presence visits the people. But in the inside is where the awe is, right? And so that's the thing I want us to notice. The awe is on the inside. So remember, remember when, when Samuel was going to anoint the king, the new king of Israel, and he goes up to the sons of Jesse, and he looks at Eliab, and he goes, oh, this guy has got to be it, he's diesel. I mean, he looks amazing. Uh, yeah. And then God actually rebukes him, and he says in 1 Samuel 16, 7, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And it's interesting that the tabernacle is glorious, but on the inside, Walls overlaid with gold, bars are gold, bases of silver, yards and yards of finely woven fabric and linen, lots of symbolism, engineering, genius, architecture, but no one ever sees it, right? No one ever sees it. Only the priests see it. The two point something million Hebrews on the outside, they will never see that stuff. And it's amazing. And it's the same as Jesus. Clothed in frail, degrading humanity. But in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form, Colossians 2.9. And that truth remains hidden unless, unless the Father reveals it, Matthew 16. Right? Verse 15, Jesus asks his disciples, who do they say that I am? And Peter says, well, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then verse 17, Jesus says something absolutely fascinating. He says, blessed are you, Simon, bar Jonah, that's Simon, son of Jonah, the for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. In other words, you didn't see that with your own eyes. You didn't figure that out with your own senses. You didn't come up with that based on observation, but it was the Father in heaven who revealed it to you. Now I want us to look deeper into this idea of Christ. We skipped it earlier, but in Exodus 25, verse 8, God says, and let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Right? So, so notice the purpose why God wants to build a sanctuary. Remember, form follows function. Verse, it's the, number, it's the second part of verse 8. He says, so I may dwell among them. Right? So we established already that the place is too small for God. It's not really His house. In fact, it's not in your notes, but in Solomon prayed in 1 Kings 8, where he says, Will God really dwell in on earth? The heavens, even the highest heavens can't contain you, much less the temple that I built. Like Solomon's smart, right? He says, uh, this temple, even though it's nice, it's relatively small, and it's here on earth, which is smaller than heaven, and the highest heaven can't contain you. So I'm sure this is not really your house. That's what Solomon said. Instead, it was the focal point of God's presence to invoke worship, to invoke praise. It was a reminder, a constant reminder, an assurance to them that God was with them. But to dwell with them? 
That's an interesting thought, right? This God who wouldn't let people come up the mountain. This God who doesn't want anybody else besides the priest go into the tabernacle. This God who says he cannot tolerate sin. He wants to dwell among them. And so the plot thickens hundreds of years later. Isaiah 7.14 Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign and behold a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and, that, and, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And you know the word Emmanuel means God with us. And here it is again. God plans somehow to be with us. He wants to dwell among us. And finally, John 1. We see the full meaning of the tabernacle. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And skip over to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory as the one only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. God became flesh and dwelt among us. That's Jesus. And the Word dwelt, and you guessed it, it's tabernacle. That's the word for tabernacle. So the tabernacle itself wasn't simply this focal point of God's presence, although it was that. It wasn't simply the model for the future temples, although it was that. In reality, it was this clue. It was a foreshadowing, a look to the future of God coming down in human form, in human flesh to dwell with sinners. And he did this. He came. He tabernacled with us in order to seek and save the lost. In order to obey the law on our behalf. In order to die and pay the ransom for those who are his enemies. And so the entire story actually ends God having accomplished all that he planned since the beginning. Revelations 21.3 The dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people. That is absolutely great news. If you ever felt that God was far, and if you ever felt that God was somehow distancing himself away from you, or if you ever felt that God doesn't want anything to do with you, you need to look at this eternal plan of God that he wanted to tabernacle with us through Christ. He took the first step. That has nothing to do with you, but everything that he's done for you. Fourth one. So we did the delicate curtain, the durable covering, the design construction, and the very last one is the dividing cloth. The dividing cloth, verses 31 to 37. The veil, basically, that's separated. Verse 31, you shall make a veil woven blue, purple, scarlet thread and fine woven linen. It shall be woven with an artistic design of the cherubim. So it looks fairly close, even this almost the same to the curtain in verse one. But the words used here are curtain and drape in the first one, the first and the first uh, design. But here, this time it's veil and screen. So you immediately you see the difference, right? So curtain is used to adorn and to decorate, but the veil is used to separate and to make a distinct space. So verse 32, you shall hang it upon four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be gold upon the four sockets of silver and you shall hang the veil from the clasps and you shall bring the ark of the testimony in there behind the veil. The veil shall be a divider. Note that a divider for you between a holy place and the most holy. That's the most holy place or 
also known as the Holy of Holies. You shall put the mercy seat upon the Ark of the Testimony in the most holy. You shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand across the table of the side of the tabernacle towards the south and you shall put the table on the north side. So take a look at the slide right there. You look at this, the, the different arrows. This is kind of like the structures coming together. The orange arrow points to the veil, right? The, where the holy place is separated from the most holy place. And the green arrow points to the ark, which is behind the veil. And the blue arrow um, which we haven't covered yet, but we will in the next 30 seconds, is the screen or the door to the tabernacle, which sounds very much like the veil, except there's no cherubim like embroidered. Okay, verse 36. You shall make a screen for the door of the tabernacle, woven of blue purple and scarlet thread, fine woven linen made by a weaver. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia wood, overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be gold, and you shall five, we shall cast five sockets of bronze for them. That's the end of the verses. So take a look at, you see there's two spaces Two spaces within the tabernacle separated by a veil. There's a main space, which is called the holy place. That's where the, pe- the, the priests enter regularly. They do their, you know, their, their sacred duties there. And then the smaller place in the back called the most holy place or the holy of holies. That's where God shows up. His presence is there. And in Hebrews 9, it says only the high priest enter there and only once a year and never without blood. In other words, never without sacrifice. So keep that in your mind. And then let's fast forward together. Solomon builds this temple into a fixed structure, right? According to the, the, according to the concepts of the tabernacle and according to God's direction, he builds it. And then it was destroyed by the Babylonians when they attacked the South. And after captivity, they came back. Zerubbabel loved the project to build the second temple, which stood about 500 years. And then Herod the Great built on top of that and expanded that same temple. So in the Gospels, whenever you hear Jesus or see Jesus referring to the temple, they're talking about Herod's, Herod the Great temple that he built. And so that temple, like all the other temples, were based on the model of the tabernacle. It also had a holy place. And it also had a most holy place. And it was separated by a veil. And it's that veil in that, in that temple made by Herod that tore when Jesus died. In Matthew 27, verse 50, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, yielding up his spirit. So verse 50, he dies. Verse 51, then behold, the veil of the temple was torn into two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked and the rocks split. So the veil that closed off God's presence from everything else. It was uh, unapproachable. It was separate. It was inaccessible except for the high priest. When Jesus died, literally, figuratively, symbolically, the veil was torn, and so was the separation between holy God and sinful man. So in the days of the tabernacle and the temple, the high priest will bring sacrifices for his sin, because he's a sinner too, and for the sins of the people. And when now, but now Jesus has become both high priest and sacrifices. And his death, for once and for all, paid 
for our sins. So that veil, that veil that was designed to separate is no longer needed. And that's, and that's what it means in, in Romans 5, 2, when Paul says, through whom, talking about Jesus, through whom we have gained access. We have gained access by faith in the grace which we now stand. We now have access through Jesus. We can come boldly to the presence of God. I want you to think about that. I want you to think about what Jesus has accomplished. And you think about the symbols and the ceremony and the details and the roles within the tabernacle all converging into the person of Christ. And all of it to demonstrate God's love for sinners. It's amazing. And as we wrap it up, I want to do some takeaways and then we'll close. First takeaway is let the awe of the details cause you to worship. Notice all the takeaways are related to action, okay? Let or allow the awe of the details cause you to worship. The designed, the design cries out to the designer in praise. Right? The detail and the precision and the design of our bodies, of, of the universe, of creation, all of that needs to cause us to pause and worship. That's exactly what Paul does after he, he, he divides up the gospel and he explains it in 11 chapters in Roman. And in the end of the 11th chapter, he bursts out naturally in doxology, in praise, in worship. Romans 11, 33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the both wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how his ways pass finding out. That's how we should be reacting. When we understand God's detail and how he works around those details, how he puts it all together, whether it's events or actual things, we realize, man, God loves the detail and he does it for its glory. And when you're t- now when you're talking about he works all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, he's working all the details out and he loves detail. Number two, don't sew up what Christ has already torn. That's a good one. Don't sew up what Christ has already torn. The veil is already torn. We have access to God through Jesus. The barrier is gone. Let, let's not make a barrier where it's already no barrier, right? Let's not do that. Jesus already paid the way. Why do we create obstacles for ourselves and for others where there's no obstacles. We make it hard for people to come to Jesus. We make it hard for ourselves to come to the Lord. Look, everything that needed to be done has already been done. It's all we have to do is walk into it. And if you, so if you think you're such a horrible person and that God will never love you, you need to see this, that there's no longer a barrier. You just go. Through Christ, you go to God directly to Him. He invites you. And then the third and final, lastly, Let God's attributes invite you to worship. Let all of who he is draw you to worship. Let his omniscience, his all-knowingness invite you to worship him honestly. Look, he already knows. He knows you're a sinner. He knows I'm a sinner. He knows you failed. And he knows your weaknesses. That's so liberating, isn't it? To be able to come to God and worship with warts and all and brokenness and to come and say, I have nothing and I'm messed up. You already know that, Lord. Let me just worship you freely. Let his omnipotence, his all-powerfulness 
cause you to worship, regardless of your circumstances, regardless of where you have been, regardless of your life, where you are, because he has the power to overcome it, whatever it is. And finally, let his omnipresence, his everywhereness, everywhereness move you to worship him anywhere. You fall down in your face wherever you are, not bound by geography, because worship is not a place. It is a reaction to the, and the understanding to who God is and what He has already done. Let's pray. Father, we're just so, so at awe at who You are, so at awe of what You've done, the detail and the symbolisms and, and the specificity of everything within the tabernacle, within the concept of the gospel, all of it to demonstrate who you are. And we pray, Father, that all of that will swirl to stir our hearts towards worship of who you are. We pray, Father, that we would just stand in awe at the magnitude of who you are, that we will see you highly, and then it would then affect everything else in our lives. The passions that we have, the disciplines that we have, the priorities that we have, the sacrifices that we make, where we spend our money, where we spend our time, all of that will be in submission to who you are. Because you, O oh Lord, have done such a great thing. Bless our hearts, shift it, Lord, and prepare us for everything else that you have this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you all. Have a good one.